Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Providing a space to sit for the for the security person, you know, like some some things that we're really focusing on, like experiential levels of like, you know, operating and, and working in the building every day. And those are things that I feel like there was a checklist there and almost everything on that you could really feel and see as, as a great benefit to the project. So I think the mixture of, of pursuing lead gold was great, but also the well building certification, I, I thought was a really good one to carry forward on this project and others since then. So talking about both those is important. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guest today is Clayton Taylor, AIA NCARB IIDA, architect and co-founder slash partner at West of West Architecture and Design, an award-winning architecture and research practice with offices in Portland, Oregon and Los Angeles, California. Clay and his partner, Jay Kumaran, forgive me if I pronounce that wrong, founded West of West in 2014, and together they lead the creative direction of the 10-person practice. Clay holds a Master of Architecture degree from the University of California and a Bachelor of Architecture degree from Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Prior to founding West of West, he worked in high-profile design studios, including Coop Himmelblau, Morphosis Architects, and Rios. Clay's dedication to education includes his current role as professor and guest critic at University of Oregon School of Architecture and Environment, Go Ducks, where he leads design studio courses. West of West is known for its new building and adaptive reuse designs, including multifamily housing, creative offices, and custom retail and hospitality projects in LA, New York, San Francisco, Austin, and Portland, all cities I've had the fortunate opportunity to visit. The project we are chatting about today is Eastbound in Austin, Texas. Eastbound is a 220,000 square foot office campus. 
The campus consists of two four-story buildings that form a central pedestrian courtyard and a host of amenities to inspire innovation and collaboration. In the vibrant heart of creative East Austin, strategically wedged between the bustling downtown Austin and Austin Bergstrom International Airport, Eastbound emerges as a beacon of innovative office space design, setting an unprecedented standard fueled by its unwavering commitment to hospitality-driven excellence. But it all started with one unexpected phone call. People ask us, well, how'd you get these projects and how they happen? And for this one, it was such a random, random moment. We were like at breakfast on a Sunday and I got a phone call from one of the client groups. And I was like, this is a weird number. So I just picked it up, which I'd never do. And it was like a Sunday at 10 a.m. Like, hey, this is Brad Corzin from the core group. A friend of mine in LA, you're doing a project with him. I heard you, I heard you guys are really good designers and, and think kind of differently about, in this case, like workplace or office design. And I was like, yeah, we're, we're excited. And I was like, I know, I know who Brad Corzin is. And he's like, hey, here's my, my partner in Austin. He's got a building we we're trying to figure out. We talked about it briefly. And then like a week later, we, we flew to Austin for the first time. I've never been there. And it was, you know, they, they had this site. It was a nursery in East Austin. They had it under control. And I think it was like a boxing gym on it and a plant nursery. But they had, they had control of it. And both the boxing gym and the nursery were moving on. So the land was kind of up for development, basically. And it, it was interesting because usually I think commercial office development doesn't happen that way. It's, you know, we were trying to put more of a story behind the, the project. So, and the client wanted that as well. So that first trip to Austin was just driving all around Austin and understanding kind of how things are, are changing and, and what's the difference between downtown Austin and East Austin. And I think we were driving for like two or three hours with Matt Green, who's, who's the court associate there in Austin. You know, he, he gave us a really good picture of where things are at and what's going on and their interest to do an office building in East Austin that would, would be different and feel different and have a different kind of ethos to it than the kind of glass towers or the, the more high-rise stuff that's going on downtown. And for us, that was an exciting thing to have somebody say, hey, we want to we want to go into this typology, but we really want to do it differently and think about it differently. And that makes a lot of sense for us to be involved in the project. As a small design office, I think we're good when the kind of brief is a little weird or a little like challenging. If the brief is like, do the same thing that you've seen five times before, then we're probably not going to be the, the best best team for that. But if you're trying to kind of invent something, I think that's, that's where we're at. So basically that tour of going around Austin and like understanding and kind of recognizing East Austin as it's changing was kind of the ethos or kind of the basis of our understanding of what we started to create as a creative brief for the project. From there, it was a process of going through and really thinking about what more of an office campus can be in East Austin, something that has a lot of ground level activity. Again, the whole area is still still growing around it, but we want it to feel like a campus and not just like a kind of locked down one big building. So, so yeah, that was kind of the base of it. We did a bunch of zoning studies, went through and, and figured out how to get to like a multi-building scheme. There were some challenging things with the zoning analysis on the site that we, we figured out early on. And then we pitched some of these ideas of, of the building. Again, we're trying to Think about the typology a little differently. There's a lot of like warehouses and kind of older big sheds that were being turned into office or creative workplace or restaurants or whatever in East Austin. So we're doing a ground up building. So we're not able to be a completely like total original warehouse shed. But the, the premise of it was like, what if we really did big 
kind of relatively raw spaces that had just these like really large apertures of light coming in, kind of like factory glazing into a big kind of volume of space. And so we we were interested in this building kind of being like a like a warehouse to some degree, reminiscent of that. But it really kind of became a little bit more than that down the road. Spanning an impressive 220,000 square feet, Eastbound is more than just an office campus. It's a testament to the power of architecture and design to inspire creativity and collaboration. West of West conceptualized Eastbound's architecture and interiors, drawing inspiration from the rich tapestry of warehouses and industrial buildings that dot the surrounding landscape. We start with this idea that the building is going to be an office building, but it's not going to look or feel like an office building. So, which is great. That opens up to, well, well, what is it? Typologically, we know the function of it, but what's the kind of feel or, or vibe of the whole building and how, how are we going to do that? So we started with this idea of the warehouse scaled spaces that are kind of more common to like a lower rise sort of industrial, ex-industrial kind of territory. So larger volumes, punched light coming in. So the building is, is created kind of around that basis. So what we did was, you know, overall, the project is about a quarter million square feet of creative office space. It's divided into two buildings. Each building, you know, one's a little bigger than the other. One's about 170, 80, and the other one's like 90,000 feet. And it was really important to split the, the, a large amount of, of space into two pieces because for us, the building needed to touch the ground really well. And it needed to build a really strong relationship from an experience standpoint from the ground into the building. So the whole idea was you're like not just going from your car into the office, but you're like moving through this kind of tight landscape piece between the two buildings. So visually to imagine that it's, it's, it's two buildings right next to each other with, with a really tight kind of alley paseo between the two buildings. And that's kind of the active zone that gets you into both buildings. Kind of the other way to think about the project and describe it is is sort of vertically. So the, the top half of the building really has these large apertures, sort of this gridded facade that wraps around it. And that's what kind of establishes this sort of warehouse take on bringing in light and fenestration, things like that. So that the top half is, the, is sort of the warehouse and the lower half is this contrasting piece to the gridded rigorous facade above. The lower half has these columns that are kind of leaning back and forth and dancing around. There's shaded spaces created by cuts in the building to provide zones for restaurants, and outdoor seating, and things like that. And that zone's generally more playful. There's also a wood soften and some other things to that. So the idea was that when the building touches the ground, it has a very playful relationship with the landscape. It's, it's kind of activating, doing lots of things. But as you get up into the building, it becomes a little more generally like austere, more kind of a gridded facade. So that contrast between the grid and the kind of very kind of playful columns and, and moments at the ground level, that's what makes something interesting and special out of this project is it's not one or the other. It's kind of doing both things and trying to navigate that relationship. Generally, that that's kind of the aesthetic of, that we were approaching that we kind of worked through on the project. The two buildings like I talked about, they're four level buildings, parking garage connects to them in the back. So collectively, you kind of get this big concrete building that has pockets and alleyways uh, through the middle of it to kind of create that connection to the ground level. But really, we were we wanted it to be as efficient as we can, but also get the buildings to feel like a campus, and they're kind of talking to one another and create some of those outdoor spaces that are captured by the the, the negative spaces. All of that's kind of really great and makes a pretty straightforward project. And then Cesar Chavez cuts the project at a weird angle, and you get some really sharp points at the ends of the building. Basically, is what ends up happening. So, kind of mapping the site is how you get basically the the kind of overall form of the project. 
aside from these kind of sculptural moments we're kind of cutting into and kind of pushing around in the facade. The building program consists of private terraces, a state-of-the-art conference center, a dynamic co-working lounge, a rejuvenating fitness center, and a dedicated bike commuter storage and lounge. Roof decks provide places of refuge, an exterior stair invites exploration, and a mural by Emily Eisenhart adds a splash of artistic vibrancy. Of the two interconnected four-story structures, each building possesses two distinct architectural personas, meticulously designed to harmonize with both the internal functions and the external interactions. The upper levels express the expansive open office spaces, and the facade is adorned with a rational grid of precast concrete panels. The design of the skin is a big deal for a lot of reasons, right? It's, it's, it's one of the more expensive parts of the project. It's the most expressive part of the project. It's also the part of the project that can really help you make an efficient envelope. And it's also the part of the building that's going to keep water out. It's funny how much stuff comes down to that surface and figuring it out. I mean, this project started as a bunch of different things. There was one group of folks in the, in the client, client group that was like, it should be all glass. So we tried that. There was kind of an interest on our side to look at GFRC or like a, a metal panel project. We kind of went through all your classic material, except for, except for brick probably, all your classic material uh, options of the project. And we always really loved, we were like, man, it'd be so great if it could be a concrete building. And there was just a question asked, I think, during one of the early meetings. We, we had uh, Harvey Cleary is the contractor for the project, and they came on early and were doing pre-con services. And for people that don't know, pre-con is normally in school, you're, you're kind of taught, you, you design the project, you bid it, and then you go build it, right? Well, pre-con is covering that gap while you're still designing the project. You have a contractor kind of giving you early feedback. And on a, on a big commercial project like this, that's extremely helpful because if I just designed a skin of the building and then sent it out for pricing at the end of CDs, I don't have any influence or I'm not able to listen to partners who are making the project kind of think about that. So it kind of, you miss the collaborative aspect of it. So we love when the project has a pre-con agreement with a big contractor that can like take the time. And again, we're meeting like every other week, we're presenting ideas and they're like, yeah, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Just like gut checks on things. And for us, that's super, super important. We've built in a lot of different cities and a lot of different like types of projects. So we need to hear from local contractors what their buying power is or technical issues they've had on something before. So all of that stuff is a great kind of feedback. So on this project, it actually was a huge benefit to us because I think we were in those meetings talking about that and we threw out what if it was concrete and the I think the contractor or there was somebody representing them was like, yeah, that'd be easy. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I thought you couldn't do a precast concrete facade like that. I thought that was not a thing. And it was, I think the statement was like, well, it's in Texas, so we can do concrete all day. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. It's, it's not California. It's not the way we've, we think about materials in other cities for projects like this. So there was an opportunity there. And for us, that meant a lot, especially on, on skin, on, on envelope designs like this. You're, you're dealing with this, this tolerance issue of how flat can the skin of the building be? That's one end, which super flat, perfectly building, has aligned waterproofing. It's all good. It's more cost effective. It's it's a very simple kind of zero plane. So like all glazed buildings are kind of most straightforward way to do a facade curtain wall system. And then there's the other end, which I think a lot of the architects start with, me included, is like how much depth can I get out of that skin surface, and how much expression and shadow and change in plane, and how far can I go with that? And so 
most facade projects that I've gone through, you're kind of recognizing the depth of the skin and where is this going to end up? Is it going to be a super deep skin? Is it going to be, is it going to get narrowed up? And the material choices in that process should influence the depth of the skin. And sometimes you're talking about four inches or six inches, maybe the thickness of a, a glass unit of, of an inch, right? So, but on this project, when we went into the precast territory, they needed more depth for the skin, reinforce it and hang it and put the anchors in. So we end up dealing with, like, I remember coming out of the minimal, oh, well, can we like, what do we have? Like, you know, four inch deep thing? Like, they're like, no, no, precast skin is a foot deep. So those panels end up being from the back of the panel to the outside face about a foot. And so there was a lot of discussions around, well, what can we do in that foot? Because this is a super unique opportunity to have like kind of out of the gate, a thicker skin in the project. And how do we use that to the to optimize the, the concrete pour in the panel system, but also how can those kind of natural ways we hang the panel and shape the panel kind of influence the pattern and the expression of the project. So that idea of, of making it deeper was, was, a, was a big deal for us. So yeah, so, so what we ended up doing is getting basically the expression of the project is, is these kind of big concrete grids and it's about a 15 by 15 foot kind of grid. Within that, you're getting the nine by nine window but between the edge of the panel and the edge of the window, there's a bunch of changes in plane and expressed edges for the concrete. And then actually, when you look at the building obliquely, the outside of the panels are at an angle as well. So what appears to be a very straightforward graded facade from far away, when you get up close to it, which, which is how you're usually experiencing the building from the ground looking very obliquely at the skin, you see the slight kind of wavering of those panels as they kind of dodge in and out a little bit. And that, that kind of sculptural element of the facade was a very kind of subtle thing, but it really paid off in the project as you see the top edge of the building kind of has a bit of a kind of castellated kind of moving edge to it. That's kind of the forming of the panel a little bit. I think there's a whole discussion of color and warmth that that's part of that as well. But yeah, that pretty much how we were kind of getting through structuring the project. And then again, it's a panelized precast system. So they're basically, we designed the panels, did a few rounds of that during DD. We did a really big mock-up, like a corner panel, and everyone was like, oh, gosh, this is really cool. And then it went into production. And you know, when they went through and hung it, basically, they're just poured concrete pieces, poured face down, and then the, the glass is installed, and then the entire panel is just hung. So the installation of the skin was pretty fast. And they're actually, they're, they're 15 by 15 squares, but they're hung and they're, they're made as double wide pieces. So they're 30 feet wide by 15 feet tall. Those big chunks just kind of tack onto the, the edge of the slab, kind of like a curtain wall system, but with really, really heavy anchors tying it in. So once that's done, then they're insulating the back and, and you're pretty much done. So I think the, the contractor was looking at ease of construction and repeatability because we came in saying, hey, can we get this kind of gridded facade? And they're like, well, if you're going to be that rigorous with the pattern, like, might as well just pour all the pattern, pour, pour all of it, because you can kind of use the molds over and over, right? So um, there, there's a bunch of nuance to the corners and panels that have balconies in them and top panels versus bottom panels. So I think it looks like a really clean grid and like it's all the same pattern. But when you really get into the details and you start drawing all of them, there's probably like, I don't know, 20 different panel, panel types in the project. So, so yeah, it, it was a fun process in figuring all that out um, and how you do a facade panel. It's got to be poured in a mold and pulled out. So you can never do like a 90 degree kind of corner. It's got to have some camper to it to kind of be able to pop that thing out. That was all an interesting. And that was part of how we were shaping it as well. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting thing. And 
I was just thinking about it the other day. I'm like, I don't know if we'll ever do a concrete facade like that again. It was kind of a rare, rare moment, I feel like. Early coordination and collaboration on the precast concrete panels ultimately benefited installation efficiency during construction and likely preserved the concept overall. We want to talk to the sub as early as we can. Like, how are they going to mold it? You know, so it, it was kind of like, let's draw and plan this thing based off of what they can do. Because, you know, it's going to be hard for them to hang these panels. We got to keep them a certain size, right? You know, 15 by 15 seems like really big. And then remember coming back to me, they're like, no, we can hang, you know, 60 foot long by 15 foot high, something crazy. And we're like, oh, they can do way more than, than we think. And I think those discussions were influencing the way the facade goes together and embracing those things. So like an, another way to do this building would have been to try to hide or conceal or drift the joints around. Drifting the joints meaning like they're not expressed where they're truly connecting. They're like the slab edge is really expressed a foot above or something like that. So we were like, let's just take the grid for what the grid is, express the edges. It's going to be a cock joint around there and the, the panels are going to go together. And we're all about just seeing the panels and how they come together. And I think getting the client on board with that and again, you get a, a bit of a rougher looking facade sort I mean compared to like a glass building but all the kind of pieces of the facade are expressed and we wanted to do that so just listening to their their method of installation and then putting that into the actual early design of the project I think that's what was was saving us stuff so again the, the thing that I've, I've just seen so many times is you design a project and you get to the contract and like well we wouldn't build it that way at all and for the scale of the building like we're talking about on, on this project like that can be a huge decision like you thought every five feet you should have a panel well, this one's every 15 feet. So like we can do, well, excuse me, 15 vertically and then 30 feet horizontally. Those are huge chunks. So I think by designing the pattern of the project to embrace the method of, of installation what was a real big deal. And we, we were like pushing for that. It wasn't so much about saving time. It just seemed to like be the, the natural way to do the project. We're still getting all of our expression and other kind of agenda put together on the project creatively, but you know, there's some things we can do to just like make the project easier for people to build. How different would this building have been had you just stuck with your original gut reaction that, oh, 15 by 15 is this kind of bid? How much would that have affected the final design of the building and the whole installation process? Had you not went ahead and had that conversation anyway and found out, oh, we can do way bigger. I think we might have lost the concrete facade, to be honest. Like it might have been, it wasn't optimized. They would price it and they'd be like, we're not doing this. But the time on the clock to design kind of runs out and then the people just start to go to what they already know. So that in period that you're inventing something new kind of goes away. So, you know, that's like the death of value engineering a little bit. I, I, I'm a proponent of doing good value engineering as well, so I don't want to be off on that. But I think if you kind of misunderstand or, or miss kind of optimize the skin get to that point they just like well we'll just put glass everywhere we'll be fine with this and yes you technically can do that but all the expression and like that kind of moment of creating something new is kind of evaporated a little bit so so I, in my mind there's like a clock running of like how can we like cover ground and get confirmation on what we're making before the the, the door closes on the budget of the project or the energy of the client group to listen to you for, for another you know, two weeks or whatever. So, The precast concrete panel set the stage for a measured deployment of glazing that veers from the typical office building that may come to mind. You know, you can't have the entire building clear glazed. It needs to have some spandrel and because it's just, it's uninsulated basically, right? So it's interesting when you think about a clear glazed building and then a building with really large apertures, the, the framing of a large view for this, for me and for this project, I feel like was more important than just going floor to ceiling with glass. 
it allowed the view to almost be more special when you can really like frame it and put like a, an edge around it. And again, it, we, we really focused on, it's about a nine foot by nine foot uh, square of glazing. There, there's some divided lights in there, but that big chunk, when you stand next to it, it's, it's interesting to see like it in relationship to human kind of figure, the sills below your knee, and then the, the head is way above your head. So it just feels like you're standing in this big portal. So I think the frame gives it some scale in a way that makes you understand and kind of see it as a really big window. But usually you walk through office and don't even notice because it's just floor to ceiling glazing and it's just like completely transparent. But there's something special about framing the view. Also, like I said, there's an energy efficiency kind of optimization of the facade where you have true solid and true void in the facade to kind of mitigate that a little bit. But also the, the floor to floor in the building is like 14 foot 11 or 10, I think. Really tall floor plate, which allows us to get that really big opening and then have the concrete frame around that as well. With 220,000 square feet of concrete structure, you must be hyper aware of the setting that concrete can create for occupants and how to balance it. The aesthetic challenge in all of that is if you do a big concrete building and you do a lot of exposed concrete inside and you do a bunch of black and steel, like, is it going to feel really cold? And is it going to feel like a jail? That's like kind of always the, the side of it. So there was a bunch of little moves about, you know, embrace the concrete, but how can you, again, it's like a really general term, but like, how do you warm it up? Quote unquote. So like on the outside of the building, we have a uh, Redondo, who was the concrete sub. They had four or five different concrete mixes be tested out of the box. And then they had different aggregate mixes and they had, you know, you can do one of these five and we're like, can we do a little bit of one and a little bit of four? So that was getting kind of black uh, aggregate in a lighter, warmer gray mix. And that combo gives you uh, a warmer concrete tone on the exterior. And it was intended to be really rough. So it's not smooth. It's got like a lot of like chunk to it for a concrete facade. And then the mullions then became, you know, these kind of bronzed mullions, which again, the bronze color next to the concrete pulls that out a little bit, pulls the warmer tone. And the glazing was a low iron glazing, so it didn't have any green or blue in it. It was pretty much a kind of darker, clear content glazing. And that, again, not putting a blue glazing or a green glazing in the building kind of helped keep the concrete color stable. And then you just continue to make those decisions as you go through the project. You know, can you bring in leathers and woods to kind of help add some warmth to it? These are all kind of general, like aesthetic ways to to warm up the project. But again, we were openly uh, we were talking about all that with the client, so that we we all knew what we were trying to trying to get to. Like, how do we make sure it doesn't feel too cold at the end of the day? And then I just got to give like the biggest shout out to TBG, the landscape architect. And their work that just played off of all this and like ramped it all up so much. When you see some of the views up above and you look across the courtyard, like all the like ground level action that all these kind of crazy angles and colors and the furniture they brought in and the colors that they picked in their concrete played off the buildings. So it's just a continuity of those designs. Continuing to soften the experience, a captivating spectacle unfolds at the ground level. The lobbies, restaurant, lounge, and lush courtyard are enhanced by a majestic colonnade of forest-like canted columns that create a space sheltered beneath a wood-clad ceiling. This nexus of intersecting spaces and materials proved to be a challenge in the design, but well worth the effort. The project between that lower part where the columns are kind of dancing around and the kind of rigorous grid, there's some soffits that kind of cut into the building they kind of draw you into the lobby. So if you're looking at photos, there's some, there's the double height moment where the lobby entry is and this kind of colonnade that's capped by this wood soffit that moves around there. 
So we creating images of the project, you know, it's dealing with services and modeling things. We texture mapped all that. Like we wanted it to be something really warm and kind of have that wood feel. That was a a big thing is to see, see wood uh, or like a warmer material when you're walking by as a pedestrian that you probably wouldn't really notice when you're driving by in a car. So that's kind of one thing that adds to the kind of warmer feel of that lower environment. But figuring out that wood soffit, which is sometimes a soffit, sometimes a wall, and then it also turns around a corner. How do you panelize the wood planks that go around there? I and mean, I remember looking back at our, our renderings and like the, the texture map was all wacky and didn't, didn't make sense because, you know, you're just kind of throwing things in there like, yeah, this should all be wood. But you don't realize that how does wood turn a corner? What happens with the angle? How does it turn a corner vertically and horizontally? And how do you get the continuity of a pattern system going up and around all these edges? I think solving it in the field was just trying to make a decision about how do you kind of angle the wood in a way that it can deal with all these conditions. That was in the set. There was like, what's the edge of the wood soffit? What's a corner look like? But it changed so much and the building shapes are changing. So it was, I think it was one of those moments where you can draw the overall ceiling plan and you can reflect the ceiling plan. You can draw all the details, but it's a three-dimensional kind of problem of how that plane changes with material depth and the right offset you want from the concrete panel and all that sort of stuff. So that was a moment of like, okay, if you're doing a complex 3D surface, like generally, right? Like it's changing wall, ceiling, all that stuff. I think there should be a little more attention to like, like how is that all coming together beforehand? And solving it was really easy. We just had to kind of pick a direction of how to cut the wood and do a couple more sketches about directing where that goes. But we didn't even know it was really a big thing until they were getting out there. And they're like, hey, I'm going to hang all these like individual sticks we're going to put on the building. And there's a bunch of questions about how they how they come together. And those are not addressed. So what, how do you want to do this to make it work? So I remember going to Austin and like looking at the software conditions and thinking through it and kind of reworked it and ended up getting the, the, the look we wanted. And it's super clean. We had, again, great subs. And that was the Akoya Delta Millworks uh, product. The other benefit is I think people spec Delta Millworks kind of all over the country and we have on other projects and we were like specking it on here. And I remember the sub being, oh yeah, we'll go talk to Delta. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like you're going to call them on the phone? They're like, no, the Delta shop is two blocks away from this building. So we can just go have them come out and talk about how their product's going to come together. I'll just give them a call. And I was like, that's amazing. So it was, it was interesting to see the solution was pretty straightforward, but recognizing the problem I think is hard. So I, I think those are ones that I really focus on because when you're getting into a project and designing it early on, I think you're you're a better designer if you know kind of the outcomes of some of the moves you're making or if you live that or at least recognize some of those outcomes before. Facade panelization, soffit, continuity, all that kind of stuff. There, there are things that when you do an early massing model, you can kind of think through those a little bit to not put yourself in a position later. And again, you can't foresee everything. So there's a system there to kind of correct and figure that out. But now I think about, you know, if we're doing these planes that, dodging in and out and doing all this stuff. There's a material thickness and a grain and a direction and, and an angle to all that stuff. It's very, very specific. It's not just a polysurface moving through a rhino model or whatever. So, so yeah, that would be my adv- advice to a future self, but I, or maybe I already use that advice. Watch the model a little bit. Expanding on the facade design, interior and exterior custom steel light fixtures mirror the playfulness of the canted concrete columns. When we were doing a lot of the interior uh, work, and that pedestrian experience, it was like, how do we really, like the, the kind of odd angles and, and put things off a little bit more? Because that, that lobby experience, when you walk in, it's kind of like a big kind of concrete show with some soffits in it. But just like you're hanging a light, that's, that was our opportunity. So how can we do something kind of different with that or interesting with that? And I think 
we were doing that interior design when there was a local lighting artist called Warbach. If you look on the outside of the building, there's these steel, they look like I-beams that have lights in them. We don't think we have any uh, nighttime photos of them, but those are actually custom designed, really, really tall light fixtures that Warbach designs, manufactures, and installs and does all the own wiring and everything themselves. It's a very like handmade light that's probably like, I don't know, 30 feet tall. And what they did is they saw our columns and they just did like a, another column of light basically that matches that really fit in with the building all out of steel super cool so at night the, those pieces glow towards the towards the lobby entrances so those moves were going on and then we were in the interior space just trying to figure out how do we hang a really straightforward linear light and it was kind of a how do you kind of take some of these very off-the-shelf things or very normal things and kind of make them a little a little different especially in an environment like this to try to draw some attention to it or, or, or kind of off offset the nature of a, a big chunky building on the outside right so being essentially a core and shell office building, another focus of the design revolved around flexibility. First thing is, you know, getting good core location. So there's there's two buildings, right? One's much larger than the other because of the angle of the street. So one building's like floor plates are like thirty five thousand, a little bit above, another one like twenty five thousand, you know. But in that amount of space, like the larger building has two cores that are split as far apart as we can. That allows for a ton of future planning. We also when we did the restrooms across the building, they're all more than code required restroom sizing. So you can have a higher occupancy. I think the biggest thing that was that was really exciting in the project was was some of the superstructure and column spacing. So sort of from north to south, it's a 30-foot structural grid. But when you go the other way from kind of lengthwise of the building, from the core out to the skin, there's there's only one column there. So you get 45, 47-foot, I think base facing in one direction and 30 foot in the other. So that allows you, like when you get into the building and you look down, you basically just see a big open shell, which again, it seems seems pretty straightforward, but really focusing on like good column spacing and optimizing that can open up the project re- really well. So like each building is about 120 feet wide, uh, 125 feet, yeah. And it has just like, again, those those column bays in the center and then this, the outside columns. Shit. So that was how we were really optimizing the core shell was Sculpt the building in a way that makes sense to really do kind of whatever you want. And again, we, we were trying, and it was a much taller floor to floor as well. So the 14 foot 11 or 10, that makes these really big volumes of space. So when you're walking through that empty shell, it just feels like this. You don't see any, you feel like you don't see any columns. There's some there, but you just see down the glass line and the kind of shell of the building. I think people can pretty much do whatever they want in there from a, from a go perspective. So yeah, and there, there was that. There was also, you look at the plans of the project, we planned a bunch of outdoor balconies on each level of the project. In the exterior of the project, there's the gridded facade, and then like a panel will have the glass removed, and you'll see a little balcony rail, and those are the little balconies. Those were strategically planned, so that way if you did a multi-tenant on each floor, or you cut the floor plates in half with two tenants or whatever, everybody sort of gets a balcony. So, And that kind of led to some of our sustainability and, and well-building uh, measures down the road of giving fresh air access or access to an outdoor space as much as we can. Again, it's, it's, we don't know where the tenant demising is going to go, but try to provide these balconies that kind of imply a certain way to demise the floors based off of how you would kind of equally use balconies throughout the project. There's also roof decks on the project, but I'm talking about more of the little balcony moments. As Clayton noted, lead and well design standards were central to the team's design approach. 
working with Gensler, they had a great uh, sustainability person helping with that. And a lot of the measures about stormwater management are all like super critical to the project. We added a lot of impervious, right? Putting two buildings where a nursery once was. So there was a ton of groundwater management, runoff management that was done in the, in the gardens and, and the spaces around the project. For us, the biggest thing was the skin. What we're looking for in a project like this is to kind of do 50-50 in terms of solid versus void of the skin. And we pretty much achieved that. I think if it was an all-glazed building, we would have a little bit more of a heat gain issue. I mean, every building has a heat gain issue for sure. So I think that was one of the things early on was trying to get some of the client group on board with the fact that it's not going to be all glass. It's going to be punched openings. That's really cool. We can make them feel good. But it also gives you a bunch of like really, really straightforward way to insulate the exterior of the building. That measure, I think, was one of the biggest ones. There's a lot of like other like kind of point EV charging and other things like that that are kind of catching points for lead, which is fine. I think as we look at the skin of a building and you design the skin of a building, that's the biggest opportunity to try and like optimize the project. It's a concrete facade that's like sometimes a foot <laughs> thick and sometimes about four inches thick. So that has insulation behind it. So it's like it's a it's a pretty pretty good way to do a skin not prospect of all the time, but it does work for that, that degree. The other thing was the outdoor spaces and managing those. And it was, again, a learning curve for me, but advice from others about how hot and humid it gets in Austin. I was born in California, so I don't, I've never dealt with the humidity and like the direct heat in the humidity whole thing. So when we were sculpting the building and sculpting the two buildings and where the outdoor space goes, we did it with the, the alleyway in the middle and the two buildings. And we put a camera down there. We talked about it with the team and it was like super shaded all the time. I'm like, yeah, there's never any sunlight down in this though. It's going to be kind of like dark. And everybody in Austin said, I was like, this is great. We just need all as much shade as we can in front of the buildings. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool to like, think about like the scale of pedestrian spaces is, is such a, such a different thing. I think if we were to do it in maybe a colder, more Northern climate, you would be a little worried about not having enough sunlight come down there and like warm up that space and then no one's going to use it. But same proportions, different climate. It's, it's a huge advantage, right? So they put a few misters out there. It never gets hit with deep sun and you can always just walk out and hang out in the garden. And it's because it's a really narrow, it's about 30 feet, it's about 30 feet wide, four feet, uh, four stories tall. You know, it's like a really cool alley. So it became like a really interesting visual thing for sure. But also that's one of the best parts of the project to hang out on. Like when I've gone to the project since it's been built, we're always talking in front uh, between the two buildings out there. We never really go out towards East Caesar because the sun's just blasting on that, that part of the project. So having this respite kind of get away from the sun is really great. I think. The other thing on this project that was really, really good that we've carried forward is the well building standards. This project went into construction like early, early 2020, I think, like January or something. So we were doing CA throughout 2020 and 2021. And it was just like, it was a very difficult time everywhere and to try to build a building even more difficult. But there was a lot of measures that came on about well building and what that means, what are the kind of ethoses of that. So we kind of focused on those standards and, and got well building certification. Uh, again, we have had a consultant helping with that. But a lot of those things about improving the MERV filtration on the, the HVAC, the outdoor spaces we had on the project and having operability in those was a big deal as well. No matter how you divide the floors, you can always have like a big sliding open window that you can open, which is really good. And there's a number of other things like putting art in spaces in the project kind of helps mental well-being. And so that was an easy one that we're like, well, we should definitely do that because we all want to put some art in this project and now we get credit for it. And then, then the other the kind of odd things like providing 
a space to sit for the for the security person you know like some some things that we're really focusing on like experiential levels of like you know operating and and working in the building every day and those are things that i feel like there was a checklist there and almost everything on that you could really feel and see as as a great benefit to the project so i think the mixture of of pursuing league gold was great but also the well building certification i i thought was a really good a good one to carry forward on this project and, and, and others since then. So talking about both those is important. As Clayton alluded to earlier, construction and material choices illuminated lessons for him to carry into future projects. It's funny, as standard as, as details can be on a project, you know, like, you know, there, there was like the concrete panels themselves, there's attachment details and how the edges were finished out. But like when those panels make a sharp corner, when they like make a, you know, more kind of obtuse corner, when they, have an, a soffit coming into them when they kind of butt up against the garage, when there's, when they hit the ground, like all these kind of other conditions, like we could plan out what the panel's going to do for sure. The facade, we, we, we know our plan there. That's all the other things that interact with those details that you don't quite know. Like do the panel close to the ground? Where's this, where's the dirt surface actually end up and how much planting is going to come in there? You know, is that whole lower level going to get blasted with, with water? Or in this case, we did a whole bunch of graffiti coating on the lower part of the building. So like, how is that going to come into play? So there was a bunch of things like you draw the project in isolation relatively as, as, a, as a building, right? But like it's interaction with the immediate kind of land of the panel. We don't want anybody to spray paint it. So we got to get graffiti coating on it like tomorrow. Can you guys pick a coating? I'm like, so, so we've spent, you know, a year figuring out concrete. Now you're going to paint something on it. And you're like, oh my gosh, oh my God. And it turns out to be great. They know what everything, everybody's fine, but. There's a lot of those those moments of like seeing where your super put together design and detail is, but when it actually arrives on site and has different conditions to it, how's that going to change it? And I think that's that's why we do the meetings to check in progress of things. Like when they were hanging panels, we would see the first ones to see what's going on. That's when the kind of the graffiti anti graffiti coating came on. We were like watching some of the joinery between the panels, like were they as consistent as we thought they were and how much of the caulking joint would you really see? Because we can draw it and, and see all that when you see light on it and the color of that, like what what's going on. So there's a ton of things like I just can't stress probably like underestimating how much the project can change and just being open to that. Like, okay, well, that's not what we thought it was. So what can we, what's our intent and where are we going with it? That's kind of my ability and, and thoughts about rebounding when you're going through a construction admin process or phase service stuff. So trying to trying to be nimble but remember the intent. So good piece of advice to put out there is when you're you're picking, you know, your finish surfaces and your cladding and things like that. If it's something that's going to need to be coated with something, make sure you're looking at that as well. At the time you're choosing the materials, not at the time you're going through submittals. Yeah. And it, a good test is like, again, like the maintenance test of, of the choices that you make. Like we get painted, painted, painted metal samples all the time. I think Jai, his first take is always he takes his keys and just scratches it all the way. <laughs> how hard is it to scratch this? And the sample will get destroyed. But we want to know how durable is the sample. And we haven't sent us another one, so we have one as a record copy. But as you're getting early submittals on a project, really think about, okay, what, what happens when this thing sits out? Like, CLT is another good one if it's exposed to the sun too much, right? Like that's an issue. So like what happens to the project when that happens or if, if moisture gets on something it shouldn't like. So I, I think it 
it's kind of like you've designed it, you've thought about the intent, you've thought about the clarity of the project and what it should do, put those ideas kind of on the shelf, draw them, get them out there, right? But then shift your brain over to how is this going to actually happen? Like, and just be really, really kind of diligent and like, what can, what can possibly happen to this skin? I think the, the like glass coating as, as well as like, you know, getting the glass color correct is, is a big deal. There's only so many options you can have and it's got a match performance requirement. But if the glass doesn't show up the right way or sometimes they put the solar coating on the wrong surface in the sample, you know, it's all that kind of stuff that like these tiny little surface decisions can really equate to big, big things down the road. So, so yeah, I, I, I think that's my, my take is, okay, how is this really going to, how is this going to get beat up? Before we close out this episode, I like to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I was curious what areas Clayton perceived as opportunities to improve the AEC industry. I think for me, what was beneficial in my career was when I really got to see the design work being presented to a client or the design was pretty good talking with my, my bosses about it. I'm like, well, you need to present to the client and talk through this. And I'm like, Oh, so now, so now I got to present. Okay. It's gotta be better now. So, you know, like, so it, I think there's this level of ownership that I think is very possible to have early on in your career over the work that you're doing in, in whatever way that might be. So is it designing something and then you're presenting it to the client or is it just sitting in client groups and hearing them just, go off the rails on what, what, what they want or don't want praise or, or, or not praise on a project? Or is it being with a contractor and just like walking a project and seeing their perception of, you know, damn architects built this room and it doesn't work, you know, like, I think it's really, really hard for young professionals to be just stuck at their desk in one space, especially like a work from home situation. Like, I think it's, it's really hard to like, just get out there and kind of be involved in the things you de- design and how they're being absorbed by or interacting with the world so you you can say you need more ca experience you can say you need more presentation experience whatever it is as long as you're seeing how your work and what you've drawn is being read by others i think is and and listening to that and then using that as kind of a way to grow i think is really, really important and i think that can happen year one out of school i think that needs to be happening year 50 or whatever out of school like it's a lifelong practice of that but it's but you need to learn to like I have vision. That's great. I'm putting ideas out there, but I'm also looking at how that's being interpreted and, and then curating my own process to make sure that, that that's kind of part of that. I think that's how buildings get better. I think that's how teams get better. I think that's how, how you can kind of mentor your career. And again, you don't need to be like out there talking and waving your arms around and speaking so much, but just listening in conversations. So we try to have our team is always in design presentations. Uh, they go to the job sites, you know, they're, they, they, they've got to see what happens when we do this move. What happens when we don't figure out parking in the building? You know, it's like the one thing that we never want to work on, but we've got to figure out parking. And you see a client like light up about where's the parking? And then everyone's like, gosh, yeah, we need to figure that. But I can only, I can tell people the requirements, but I want them to see. And also we want our team to like be listening and, and seeing how those conversations evolve without, you know, giant eye involved. Like, where is this thing going? Where does it want to go? And I think that's where you need to let the project and the creative process on the project have its own life a little bit more, but having more people listening and curating that. So I'm all for people just unfiltered. Basically, you're going to listen to the client. We're going to sit here. If you want to present, you should. 
Um, if not, that's cool. And also you're drawing this window in this location. Like let's talk about why you did that and why you want to do that. And we'll help you kind of guide you through that. But at the same time, you kind of just need to go through what's it mean to do a two bedroom apartment with windows that aren't big enough. Like what's that feel like? Why? What's going to happen from that? You know? So I, I think, yeah, I think it's interaction of your work and seeing it in the world. I really enjoyed this conversation with Clay. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. I think impact kind of comes in the form for me of, of how you can kind of share and coach kind of others a little bit. Teaching design studios, it's really great to see what students come up with, and I never want to like tell them to design a project one way or another because that just completely defeats the purpose. But finding this way of coaching, I think for me has been been a big deal. And then in our practice as well, we want our team making projects and not like JRI just drawing a drawing and then somebody else makes it bigger. Yeah, like it's makes no sense. So how do you go about kind of creatively coaching coaching folks? So I, I think that's one of the things for me that I, I think is my approach to these things in terms of impact. And what we leave behind, maybe, I, I think I'm into, excited by doing the reason why I'm in architecture is we're building big pieces of a, a city or a corner store or an interior environment, but they're creating an experience for people to, to kind of interact with, specifically non-architects that don't get it. It's about those kind of everyday moments that people walk through and like, have you made that somehow better or thought-provoking or elevated to some degree? So I think for me, it's like, how do you kind of find very simple things out there in the world and make them a little different or a little more kind of positive from an experience standpoint? And I guess that's a pursuit in what we do in our work. That's kind of the lasting impact. And I, I do see it as an evolution of work. And that's how West West has run. We started doing little retail stores. And now we're doing his projects like a 450,000 square foot two block project. That's under construction now. So like, you know, it's kind of crazy to see how our creative ambitions have grown to have such larger impact, but we're really trying to see what, uh, what those can do. So the world domination part is what freaks me out. It's like, I don't want to take over the world. I just want to have people kind of have a good relationship with the built environment and give people space to make great contributions to the built environment so that we can all enjoy that. So again, that's kind of from like a coach perspective or from a tutorial perspective. I think that goes a long way. It's like kind of getting the, the team kind of going one way or working towards the same goal. I, think is, is I have like a funny thing in my head about like, be nice to the built environment. It'll be nice to you. Like be nice to the environment means like do the work and spend the time and create a great project. And on the financial side, put good money into a project and build things that make sense. Be nice to the built environment. And I think the benefits that it will be nice back to you is kind of the way of like, you know, good energy in, good energy out kind of thing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com 
That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.